invite you to turn in the scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue our series through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that we refer to as 1 Corinthians. Now there's a challenge that we're facing as we continue on this series for all of us who live really in kind of a soundbite tweet culture, right? Where there's all these little influences that hit us and then we forget about them, hit us and forget, we forget about them. And the challenge when we come to the word of God is that in Paul's letter, it's not simply a string of pearls. Have you ever noticed that when you're reading scripture? It's not just one great amazing statement and then he pauses and then he says one other great, a great amazing, maybe an answer to a question you've had about life and, and then another pearl of wisdom. That's not how Paul organizes his letters, as if those pearls are unrelated to each other. No, he's, instead he's making a sustained argument, um, chapter after chapter, and we're still in the middle of his first argument in this book, even though we're four chapters in to Corinthians, talking about divisions in the church. So that the challenge for us is to take the pieces that we get each week, and put them together in, into one, weave them together into one whole, one whole argument that he's making. And that's hard work for us. Okay, that function has, uh, has uh, been denigrated in our brains because of the culture we live in. And so we, we want to exercise those muscles this morning to have some sustained attention to this sustained argument. So, so let's try to summarize the argument so far. Paul has addressed the Corinthian church and through them us as one church. One church, but there's a problem because there are divisions, right? That's the basic problem that he's been addressing so far. But he's come to address those divisions with one message. That is the message of Christ crucified. That's the one message because the one God, the one true God, is uniting Believers from all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of preferences and even convictions is uniting them all into one body, is, in, is uniting them into, into one household. He's used different metaphors as we've gone through, and he's going to use some more later in Corinthians. He's uniting all true believers together to be one, like Eric reminded us from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, that they may be one even as you and I are one. That there would be no divisions in the church. And so then we have two groups of people that Paul is addressing. And we have to try to categorize ourselves, this calls for introspection, into one of the other of these two groups. There's the mature, those who Paul calls spiritual, who are embodying and growing into this purpose that God has revealed. They're embracing, yes, we love the oneness that you're producing, God, in the body of Christ. And I want to embrace that and I want to grow up into that unity that you're producing. And then there's other people that Paul is addressing in this letter that he calls immature or carnal or fleshly, depending on the translation that you're reading. And they are basically opposing God's uniting project to make one body in Christ under one head who is Jesus himself by, by cultivating divisions in the church through various ways and means. 
And Paul says you're standing against God's purpose. Your heart isn't lining up with, you're not cultivating a purpose that's in line with what God is doing in making us one in Christ. And that's a problem because God will produce one body. And we want you to be a part of it, Paul says. Now within those divisions, Paul says, there's some, and we've heard this before, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And it's not simply that they're for Apollos, but also that they're against Paul because of the way they've positioned themselves, because of what they're cultivating in their heart. And this is a problem because Paul says, he waves the flag, he says, hey, we're all on the same team. We're all on the same team here. So don't, don't cultivate something in your heart that's against God's purpose, that's against our teamwork together. And so instead of thinking of Paul as a, an opponent or an enemy or, well, that's your preference, but I really prefer Apollos. Paul says, how then should you regard us? And that's where he starts in chapter 4. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is how one should regard us, he says, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? as if you did not receive it. Now, you may have heard it as I went through this text, that there's a lot of judgment in this text. Did that jump out to you? There's a lot of judgment in this text. And I want to just make a few of those places explicit as we dive into this text. He says, first of all, it's required of students that, or, or of servants that they be found faithful. When is a servant found faithful? Well, anybody have your annual review last year? for your job, right? And did you live up to expectations? Did you say, did you do what you said you were gonna do, what you had agreed to do? You were found faithful in kind of an annual mini judgment, right, of, of an evaluation. Um, or or maybe, maybe in a, a large household, there's servants who have developed over years, right? It doesn't happen in a week or two. Over years have developed a reputation as being faithful servants, but that takes time. In fact, we look back uh, when we come to someone's retirement party, for instance, we'll look back and, 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 and say, we're so thankful that you were at this company. You made such a difference overall. You were found faithful, right? There's a commendation that's shared in that kind of a judgment. Another place where he, he says uh, it's, not, it's such a small thing. It's like less than micro is what literally Paul says here. 
that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Like everybody has their day in court. That's what Paul's talking about. And then he says, I don't even judge myself. So you see how judgment is coming through. He says, not that I'm aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Acquitted is another word that may not have jumped out to you at first, but is a, is a court of law kind of a word. I'm, I'm, not, I'm pronounced innocent, but not by myself. He said, I'm not the one who pronounces myself innocent, pronounces myself righteous. I'm not acquitted by myself. It's the Lord who judges me, he says. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time before the time the Lord comes, that is, on the day of judgment. And then down in verse 7, he says again, who sees anything different in you? Which is a different word, but it's the same root of judgment. Who is able to make distinctions among you? To approve this group and to disapprove this group? This group has it all together, and these people are just all messed up. Who can make that distinction? He said, it's a kind of a judgment that's happening. So judgment is one of the major themes through this whole passage. Now, maybe you're a guest in our church this morning. It's the first time you're coming to church. Maybe it's your first time being in church for a while, and you're saying, oh, great. I came to a church on a Sunday when we're going to preach about judgment. Just what, I, just what I need. And yet, I hope that to show you that we need Paul's view of judgment here. Paul has a view of judgment, something to offer us, that we need. And so we're going to answer a few questions in this text. In this text, we will answer first, what is judgment? What is Paul's view of judgment in this text? Second, why do we need judgment? Why do we need judgment? And third, how can we live in light of that judgment? So, first of all, what is judgment? As I've said, you may think that judgment as a concept is really the problem in our world, not the solution. We have certainly experienced a lot of judgment in our culture, a lot of division, right? Do we really need more judgment? But I would say that the, the judgmentalism that we are currently experiencing in our culture is, is a symptom of, a, of the reality that we have not grasped what Paul is saying about judgment here. And that if we do grasp this, it will set us free from that kind of judgmentalism. Paul's expectation in verse 5, is that there will come a day when the Lord Jesus returns. And every one of us will stand before him on that day. Every one, every person will stand before the Lord Jesus. And his word in that moment will be comprehensive. It will be all-knowing. It will be incontestable. That is, no one will go away from Jesus in that moment saying, well, I don't think you really knew the whole story, Jesus. When we, we heard it this morning, Jenny read it for us. When we stand before the one whose eyes are like fire and whose voice is like the sound of many waters, everyone who goes away from that moment will say, yes, that's right. He spoke the truth. It'll be comprehensive. It'll be incontestable. And that word will be final. Because of that. Every one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says this is a warning to believers. It's a warning to believers. Let me read again 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5. The first part of verse 5. Paul says this. Therefore, 
And this is our main exhortation from this text this morning. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So there will come a time when it's appropriate to pronounce judgment, Paul says. When is that time? That time is after Jesus speaks. And then if you agree with Jesus, it's appropriate to articulate what Jesus, the judge, has already articulated. Because he has a comprehensive view. He will disclose things now hidden. One of the problems with us setting ourselves up as judges is we just don't have the information. We just can't see the thoughts and intents of the heart. We tend to judge by outward appearance, right? That sounds like scripture someplace else, right? We tend to judge by outward appearance. We tend to um, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and, and not do that for other people, right? We tend to judge them worse and we, we see ourselves in a favorable light. We tend to minimize our contribution, maximize the wrong thing that somebody else did. Is, is any of us fair and objective? Is there anyone who can bring a righteous judgment that's part of the good news of, of the gospel is that there is a righteous judge. There is someone who can do that. The Lord Jesus Christ can do that. But that, this serves as a warning for the Corinthians. What is it that they were hiding in their hearts? What was the intent? Do you see the heart focus here? What was the intent of their heart? Did it line up with God's purpose in making one body under one head? Or was it divergent from that? Was it contradicting that purpose. There's a warning here that Paul is giving. But there's also hope, which may strike you as odd that there's hope when we talk about judgment, but that's what Paul is, is saying here. Look at the last part of verse 5, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Let me read it for you. He says, then, after he discloses the purposes of the heart, then each one who stands before the Lord will receive his commendation from God. Now, you may have expected that to say his condemnation from God. That's not what it says. It says each one will receive his commendation from God. And we tend to think of judgment as equals, straight formula. Judgment equals condemnation. That's how we tend to think of judgment, I think. But in the Jewish mind, and I think in Paul's mind, it, there, was, there was much more to it than that. It was much more robust than that. Let me give you an example of this. The first time I remember running into this was in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, I was, I was reading it, I was meditating on it, and I, I ran into something that was confusing. Let me read it for you, and I'll show you what I mean. Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. I think we've got it on the screens here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, however, he says, the wicked are not like this. The wicked are not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, look at this, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. There's the judgment word. And what does he say is parallel to that? The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
Sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So for Paul, in his mind, and for the psalmist there in Psalm 1, what was parallel to judgment was the assembly of the righteous. When all the righteous, those whom God has approved, are gathered together in one place to receive their commendation from God, to receive exoneration, this is the judgment. And they were looking forward to the judgment. The judgment to them was good news. Good news for an oppressed people who had been slaves and then lived lives uh, in, in a warring society. Where, where could you go to get justice in that society? The judges were set up and people would, would come to Deborah or the other judges and say, my, my neighbor has wronged me, I need justice, but I can't decide that for myself, I need to bring that to a higher authority. And they brought their case to the judge in hope, in hope of receiving a good word, in, in hope of receiving justice, in hope of receiving commendation, approval. Paul carries this same mindset as he looks forward to the judgment because, and we'll spend a few more minutes thinking about this, but, but try this on for size. Paul was looking forward to the judgment because he knew that the judge was the one who had died for him. He wasn't scared of the judgment. He was waiting for the judgment. When we get to the judgment, you're going to see this word of commendation, I've been serving Christ, and he's the only one I want to serve. Not that I've been perfect, not that I've been sinless. We know Paul didn't see himself that way. He saw himself as chief of sinners. But I'm, by faith, faithful to the call of Christ. And I'll stand in the judgment. I will stand and receive my commendation. So he delivers both warning to believers for us to examine our heart, but also, but also hope as we look forward to the coming of Christ. And so why do we need this judgment? Why do we need this judgment? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 7. Let me read it again to you. I have applied these things. He's taken, he's taken the reality of a future judgment, and he says, I've applied that to myself and Apollos, this whole mess that you've gotten us into because you said, I prefer Paul, I prefer Apollos, one against another. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that is, what has been written so far in this letter to the Corinthians, including his references to Old Testament scripture, the truth that he's putting before them, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Maybe puffed up that, that pride would come in and there would be division because you're choosing one over against, you're setting one on a pedestal and you're putting somebody else down. Instead of saying, no, no, we're all members of the same family, right? Who sees, who is it that makes distinctions among you? Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? You received from Apollos, you received from Paul. You received from Peter. Where did we receive it? <laughs> from Jesus. We all received it from the same place. So to make distinctions among us is really a, 
a mistake and is divisive in the body. If then you received it, why do you boast, he says. This, this prideful boasting that he keeps hammering on. Paul says we need this judgment. We need to be mindful of the future because it's an antidote to division in the present. He says, please consider everything I've written so far. Remember the future. There will be a judgment. And Jesus Christ will be that judge. He's a, he's a good and a knowledgeable and trustworthy judge. Paul says, I myself entrust myself entirely to his judgment. To his good word over my life. To his understanding. And then in that moment, Christ will show that we are one. We're on the same team. We're, we're members of the same administration. We're sem- members of the same body, he'll say later. We're members, the metaphor that he uses in this chapter is, is members of the same household, which is a little bit not a familiar metaphor for us. So we need to explore that a little bit. What does Paul mean when he says we are servants? We're stewards in the same Household. Some of you remember that the word servant oftentimes in the New Testament is the same word we have for deacon. That's not the word that's used here, actually. It's a more obscure word for servants that, that means something closer to quartermaster or attache. Or like uh, um, if you're in um, medicine or counseling, a medical or a counseling resident, where your license and practice depends entirely on the license and practice of your superior. You're not practicing on your own, but you're dependent on someone else. That's what this servant who, who is operating on behalf of someone else in the household. And a steward, when he says we're stewards in the house of God, it's like if you think of a property manager, a rental manager, who maybe has a lot of decisions to make, a lot of important decisions, is covering 100 properties, maybe. is responsible for all that, but doesn't own any of them themselves. Who is it that they report to? Well, the owner, right? They, re- they report, but they're responsible to the owner to make all these deci- really heavyweight decision-making responsibility, right? But a steward. We're servants. We're stewards in the same household. Me and Apollos, Peter, the other apostles, we're all fellow servants in the same household, one household, one body. We have different jobs, and, they, and, and we may do them differently. I may run my administration a little bit different than Apollos does. Apollos may have some different stylistic preferences, different approach, right? How many people have worked for several different managers during your life? And, and we all have preferences, right? We thought we liked the first guy until we worked for the second lady. And then we found out what good management was, and we were really sad to see her go for the next person who came in, right? So we have preferences, and yet they all, in their own way, they're getting the job done in spite of those preferences, which is why he says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says this. With me, it's a very small thing. Like I said, it's smaller than micro. That I should be judged by you or by any human court as in my servanthood, in my stewardship. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord 
who judges me. There's a dynamic. There's a dynamic here that Paul is illustrating for us. That, that human approval and human judgment shrinks to, to having almost zero influence in our life. When we see ourselves in light of the judgment that we'll stand in when we stand before Jesus. There's going to be judgmentalism in this world. Right? We're going to feel that. We're going to be guilty of it sometimes. But there's an incredible shrinking power on that judgmentalism when we start to, to see Jesus for who he is, which is why I appreciated Jenny reading that during our worship this morning. That we see Jesus for who he is. It shrinks that judgmental power in our life. Right? Because it holds no weight no gravity compared to the master's commendation when he comes. My wife and I, several years ago, anybody else watch Downton Abbey? I think, we, I think we saw every episode at least once. The Christmas episode probably several times, um, if you remember that. I was thinking about that in regard to a, a steward, a household manager. That might be a, a picture that I've taken away from that show I was thinking that if Lord Grantham changed his mind one morning and didn't want tea but wanted coffee, right? If he didn't want tea but wanted coffee, it wouldn't matter what anybody else said downstairs. Mr. Carson was going to make sure that Lord Grantham had coffee, right? Carson didn't, didn't care one whit for anybody else's opinion if Lord Grantham wanted coffee. Or, conversely, if all of America decided to give up tea and start drinking coffee... It wouldn't matter at all to Mr. Carson. He would still give Lord Grantham his tea if that's what he preferred that morning, right? Because he, he's running a whole household. He has a lot of responsibility, but he's reporting to one person. He's working for the pleasure. Would it hurt Mr. Carson's feelings if somebody said, we think drinking tea is dumb? <laughs> he would hardly waste a second on you. Right? It would shrink to nothing because of his, how much he valued the Lord Grantham's opinion. That's what Paul is saying. It's less than nothing because it's the Lord who will judge me. I have one goal in this life. That's to be found faithful by the one who's called me, by the one who has died for me. I want to be found faithful by him. That's where my faith is resting in him and in the time that I am before him face to face, that he will commend me, not because of my sinlessness, but because of my faith, is, is wholly fixed on him. And so this prompts the question for us to consider. I think whether you've been a believer for a long time, or maybe whether you're here and you wouldn't really consider yourself to be a believer, who is this judge that Paul is talking about? That's a question that you need to settle it's a question that every one of us needs to settle because we will stand before him. Each one of us will stand before him. It's interesting to consider Paul's theology in this way. And we're going to come back again and again to Paul's origin story, the origin story of his own walk of faith. Because he didn't start out as a believer in Christ. He was not a believer. He was a denier of Christ. He would have said... This Jesus, whom people call the Christ, who came not demanding 
but giving his life for other people, was judged and condemned to die on a cross. That much Paul knew before he embraced Christ. This man was condemned to death and died on a cross, and rightly so. And Paul would have said, I myself contributed to that condemnation after it happened. Because I went about zealously persecuting everyone who claimed the name of Christ. I was literally condemning people to death because of their faith in this Jesus who was called the Christ. And so Paul has this this strange before and after experience in his self-righteousness putting down what he saw as this new movement away from the one true God, pursuing those people to literally condemn them to death and being knocked off his donkey, as you remember. And remember what Eric mentioned this a few weeks ago. That Jesus said to Paul, not Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? Right, he didn't say that. He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his church that he took that personally as if Paul was, in fact, attacking and persecuting and condemning Christ. This revelation shattered Paul's self-righteousness. The thing that he had depended on all his life. His good standing, his own self Affirmation, his own self-judgment shattered it. There was nothing left. He went into a wilderness of contemplation. What, if, if, if the one thing I thought was not true is true, then what about everything else I believe? And Paul began to discover what he didn't understand, that when Jesus died on the cross, it was not because he was condemned for his own sins. But there was something, a mystery, something hidden, a secret that nobody, including his disciples, even understood at the time. That when Jesus went to the cross, he was going in the place of sinners to take their sin on himself. To take their condemnation on himself so that he could share the commendation that he deserved with those sinners. God was doing a secret switcheroo with Jesus on the cross. Taking our condemnation, Paul says, my own as a sinner, he says. Because he goes from thinking himself entirely righteous to calling himself sinner in chief. I was the sinner in chief, he says. But Jesus took my place. And I have now received a commendation, not because of anything I've done, but only by faith in him. Only because I have placed all my hope and faith in his death and resurrection. I have received a grace and an approval, a commendation that I never deserved, Paul would say. I've received that word of commendation that I've never, never deserved. And in the words of John Donne, Paul would say, my judge sealed my pardon with his own blood. And so I have... I have Every confidence when I stand before him of receiving, receiving not condemnation, but commendation. Receiving, receiving not crossed arms, but welcome, open arms. Well done, good and faithful 
servant. Because your, because your sin record was perfect? No, because of your faith. And so Paul says, I've entrusted myself entirely to this judge who sealed my own pardon with his own blood. Paul came to understand that this judge offers all of us the best possible situation for judgment. Can you, maybe you came in this morning and you had one picture of judgment. I hope when you leave you have a different picture of judgment from Paul here. Can you imagine a better judgment situation than this? In which the one who is going to judge you died for you to seal your pardon already, past tense. It's done. And so on that day, your commendation is sure. What hope do we have in Jesus? This is the hope that we have in Jesus. At the cross, Jesus took our condemnation that we deserve, the, the condemnation that divided us from God. And in giving us this commendation, he has united us to himself, and he's united us to every other believer who has their faith also in Jesus Christ. So then there's a dynamic when it comes to our, our judgmentalism, the, the thing that starts to form in our hearts that we're tempted to, right? And, and that dynamic goes like this. If Jesus on that day has only commendation for my brother or my sister, then who am I to condemn them? If Jesus, whose eyes are like fire and whose voice is like the sound of many waters, has only commendation for my brother or sister, who am I to harbor resentment and condemnation to think of myself up here on this pedestal and them down here below? Who am I? Can you start to see, can you start to see how this judgment that Paul has in mind unites us? It starts to overcome, it starts to be an, an antidote for division in the church. As we start to live in light of that judgment. So then let's ask the practical question. How can we live in light of this judgment? I think first we need to recognize that there are differences. There are a lot of differences that we have, right? Differences in, in preferences, differences in experiences. How you came to faith in Christ is different than how I came to faith in Christ, right? The church you grew up in was different than the church uh, that I grew up in versus maybe you didn't grow up in church. We all... We all have different experiences. Maybe that was a Methodist church or a Lutheran church or a Pentecostal church or a Catholic church or, or no, no church. Right? Many, many differences. And even in the church, there's, there continues to be challenges because we, you know, we say we want to do ministry. Everybody says, yes, let's do ministry. Well, how should we do that ministry? Ten different hands go up. We want to sing praises to the Lord. Yes, absolutely. What shall we sing? Ten different hands. Foo, 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 foo. Right? There's preferences, differences that we have. We could even, <laughs> we don't have to look back very far to consider what we walked through as a church, as a local body, through COVID. Did anybody experience any differences of opinion as you walked through COVID? With anybody, the, 
Is that a surprise to you? This is not a newsflash. That there was differences of opinion as we walked through COVID. And as we look back now, we can laugh. I hope. I hope we can sincerely laugh. But, but it's true that those differences of opinion, of conviction, threaten to create divisions in the church. Isn't that true? We can look back and see that. We can look back and see that. These differences, we tend to think, oh, I'm really good at overcoming differences until it hits one that we really feel passionate about. Then, right? Then, then it starts to drill. Oh, well, that's not really a, well, I don't know if we want to talk about that one. Right? The, the one that's really important to us. And yet Apollos had come preaching. Paul had come preaching. He said, I laid a foundation as a master builder. I'm, I'm like a father to you. Okay, fine, Paul. You're a, you're a good father. You got us together. We did Bible study. There were, there were 20. This is totally conjecture. Okay, this is totally conjecture just for sake of illustration. There were 25 of us there. It was great. There were 30 of us there. You did a great job. We got, got a little church together. But when Apollos came, whoo, he blew the doors off. Have you heard that guy preach? He blew it out of town. And the crowds that came when Apollos was in town, man, we weren't, we weren't 35 or 40. We were 250. We were 500 when Apollos came into town. That was the spirit, brother, when Apollos showed up. Yeah, Paul, you did. You're a father. You're a master builder. We'll give you the credit. But Apollos, whoo. We all benefit from many stewards, from many workers. We have a team of pastors. We have a team of deacons. We have many ministers in our church. In fact, it's our, it's our hope that every member of Redeemer Church will be a, a minister in the body, building up the body according to gifting. Who are we to, to, to show deference to, to cultivate divisions of one over against another, of who's the most valuable minister. What a ridiculous statement. If the Lord is building his body, which is why Paul would later use the, the, that metaphor of a body. How can you say that a liver is more important than a big toe? You can't say that. And in the members of the household, all the different functions of the household have to be functioning for the household as a whole to run smoothly, right? You are, you are benefited. We, church, are benefited by the ministry of so many servants and so many stewards, even servants and stewards that we will never meet in this life. I heard a couple weeks ago a man named Gordon Fee passed away. Many of you have never heard of Gordon Fee, and now you'll never meet him. Gordon Fee was uh, an evangelical, spirit-filled follower, Jesus Christ, who wrote what is considered to, to be the, the standard commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. You didn't even know Gordon Fee, but he's already benefited you in the last six weeks. As both Eric and I have benefited from Gordon Fee's study and research in the Word of God, his ministry has benefited... But does Gordon Fee get the glory for that? Or does Eric Hughes get the glory for that? No, Jesus gets the glory for that. Because Jesus is the head of this household who has died to welcome people, both from 
sophisticated and wise, powerful positions and from the poor and vulnerable, neglected positions to his banqueting table to come into his household. And we are all just, we're just ministers. We're just servants. We're just stewards in that household. And so we need to recognize that although there are differences, divisions begin in our hearts, right? These divisions begin in our hearts. Paul says we need to stop finger pointing, stop, stop accusation, and, and do some self-examination. This is an invitation in this text. Not to say, aha, you're doing it again, right? But for each of us to look into our own hearts. Am I cultivating divisiveness that's not in alignment with Jesus' one body project, with one household project? Am I condemning my brother when Jesus commends them because we're all fellow servants. We need to be careful of a running critique in our head that's kind of the the subtext of every conversation, that's kind of a a low grumble underneath all the conversations we have. We we have opportunity in in the body of Christ to have straightforward, forthright conversations with each other if there's a problem. If you have a problem with one of the pastors, please come to us. We've even written into our bylaws for any of our members. If there's a charge that needs to be brought against an elder, don't throw discernment out into the garbage. That's not what Paul is saying here. But let's be forthright with one another. Let's not let this small, slow, under-the-surface smoldering continue to light the whole house on fire. That's what Paul is saying. Be careful of that continual critique that runs in our hearts. And so then let's, let's move. What do stewards do? What do servants do? Well, they serve. So let's move in service to each other. You know, it's funny. When we have trouble believing, we need to act in obedience. Sometimes when we have trouble overcoming that running critique in our hearts, a simple and practical step is to take a step of service, to reach out and serve that person. To, to serve the church in a way. To, to, to put that person, like Paul says in Philippians, as more important, their needs are more important than my own needs. To put their needs before my own. Service in that way that makes us reflect on our own heart is the antidote, is the antidote to cultivating divisions like Paul is warning us about. So as we close, I want to invite our worship team to come back up to the platform, and they're going to lead us in just a moment in uh, the, the hymn In Christ Alone. And you may think of In Christ Alone as simply a, an individual declaration, but as we, as we sing it together, I want you to consider the hope that each of us has in Jesus Christ, who will on that day give to each of us by faith this word of commendation that we've been talking about. That it's in Christ alone that we put our hope. And I want you to sing it loud so that your uh, brother or sister next to you can hear you. And I want you to listen while you're singing to your brother and sister's declaration that we as a body have this corporate hope in Christ alone. Because we are one body. We are one household. We are one building in Christ. And it's the Lord who is doing this project and building us up together. So as we sing... Let it be, let it be our, our bragging, our boast that all of our confidence 
is in Christ. Father, I pray that you will lead us by your spirit as we sing. And lead us, more importantly, Lord, in the coming week, in this hope that we could live in light of standing before you on that day of judgment to receive by faith that word of commendation. Lord, we do not take that lightly, but it's a weighty reality in our life. I pray that you will help us to live in light of that as we interact with each other. Lead us to that day because of Jesus, we pray. Amen.